Greetings and welcome to Real Men Feel. This is your host, author, coach, and healer, Andy Grant. You can learn more about me at theandygrant.com. Real Men Feel invites you to redefine what masculinity means in today's world. Now, I believe the only, the only definition of masculinity that matters is yours. We remind men that they are human beings and have the right to experience and express all of their emotions. We have conversations that most men are not having, but that all men can benefit from. You know, one of the most mentioned books the many learned guests of Real Men Feel have said to me is When Boys Become Boys, Development, Relationships, and Masculinity by Judy Chu. Judy is an educator, researcher, and author. She teaches a course on boys' psychosocial development at Stanford University. Her book, When Boys Become Boys, highlights boys' relational strengths and how boys' gender socialization can impact their development, relationships, and well-being. She also co-edited Adolescent Boys, Exploring Diverse Cultures of Boyhood. Judy currently serves as chair of the Global Men's Health Advisory Committee at Movember and co-chair of the Board of Directors at Equimundo, the Center for Masculinities and Social Justice. She also advises the Partnership for Male Youth and the Boys Club of New York. I recently discovered we had a number of connections in common on LinkedIn, so I reached out, and I am very psyched to say, welcome to Real Men Field, Judy. Thank you so much, Andy. It's a pleasure to be here with you. You do an amazing amount of support for boys and young men. And so the first thing that comes to my mind is like, what what got you interested in that to begin with? Oh, well, actually, it was boys who <laughs> who kind of led me to the work. I was um, spending a lot of time. My, I have a younger brother who's nine years younger. And so after my first year of graduate school, I went home and was basically chauffeuring a bunch of 13 year old boys around. And they were asking, you know, what I was learning at Harvard and, you know, wanting to be impressed or whatever. And I told them, oh, well, one of the most interesting things I've learned this year was, you know, the work of Carol Gilligan, who eventually became my academic advisor. And she had been doing this work with adolescent girls and kind of what girls were going through at adolescence and how to best support them and the things that they were coming up against and all that stuff. And one of the boys said to me, you know, that's important and good. But you know what? You know, we have something to say, too. There's stuff going on for us, too. And nobody's looking at boys. And so he decided for me, he said, you should study boys. You can start with me. And so I kind of sat with that, took it back with me You know, when I went back in the fall to school and mentioned it to Carol. And she said, you should talk to him. You know, clearly he's interested and wants to say something. And so for her class, which I was taking that semester on clinical interviewing, I, you know, used that opportunity to interview him. He talked for two hours about, you know, just various things that were going on, his relationships, you know, just messages he was getting about what I mean, you know, just all the questions that he had in his mind to talk. And he really did. He was so thoughtful and had a lot to say. And I don't think that he is alone in being thoughtful and having a lot to say. And so that kind of started my whole uh, exploration of, you know, that involved kind of just revisiting what do we know about boys? I mean, I think a lot of the literature on human development psychology kind of assumed we knew about boys and men since a lot of earlier development and psychological studies had been largely based on boys, you know, at a time when they were like, oh, we can just study boys and men and extrapolate from there. Mm -hmm. But they had done, they'd studied boys and men in a way that maybe missed a part of their story or missed something in their experience. And so I had a lot of fun, actually, just, you know, getting to not be a fly on the wall because obviously they knew I was there. I really stood out, you know, when I went, entered all boys, you know, schools and such, but they were so generous and so forthcoming and just kind of saying like, yeah, that's important to ask. Yeah, we can tell you. And as long as they trusted that I was really interested in hearing it, they had so much to share. And I was just lucky and grateful to be there. Wow. That's phenomenal. So 
did it seem that these boys were they it sounded like they were longing to speak about this were they were they talking about this to anyone else were you were you the first chance they took gosh that's a great question um i think that they were you know they they definitely wanted to talk about it they weren't they were but you know at early ad i started out um talking with and listening to early adolescents so kind of seventh eighth grade and then through high school and definitely they um they wanted to talk about it, but they weren't sure with whom it would be safe to do so. And some of them did talk about it. Like, they're like, oh, you know, in my general peer group, you know, if you kind of spill your guts and tell people these things, they'll just, they'll use it against you. You know, it could be, you don't want to reveal yourself and make yourself vulnerable in that way. But, you know, some of them had close friendships and they talked about the value of that, like, you know, and how important those were to them and how like, you know, my best friend knows me, we can just be each other. He's, we're totally different, but we support each other in every way. And it just helped them to feel like they could get through life's ine inevitable challenges and hurdles, you know, like the, the sense of being in it together rather than alone was so valuable. So they, yeah, they had a lot of you know great insights, you know, things that we might as a society attribute to like, oh, that's, you know, things that girls talk about with their friends, but that guys don't, that's, you know, any of those stereotypes were completely, you know, irrelevant. Um, it, at the minute I started listening to these boys and hearing what they had to say, because they were, like I said, really thoughtful, really attuned, reading their relationships and the social dynamics and what, you know, kind of trying, you know, really trying to figure out at a time in their lives, like, what's going on? What's the reality? And how can I, how can I fit in here? Do I fit in? What's my place? How can I show myself to others and not Put myself at risk of being teased or bullied but you know really longing for those kind of genuine authentic connections you know because of course we all need that all people need that and it's silly to discount the the, the possibility that boys and men would want that as well right, right. yeah i'm glad you said men because i know men at, at, at every age it's that challenge of what can i share what what will be used against me even by my friends and you know just the kind of the ball busting and ribbing that that guys will do but i also know that when guys admit it like it hurts too. Like they know it's a joke, but it still hurts. Exactly. Exactly. So tell me about the study that led to the book. Okay. So, um, so I, as, as I said, I, I started out um, talking to adolescent boys and when I was, you know, and, and every week I would meet with my advisor, Carol Gilligan, and we would talk about, you know, what I was hearing as I was, you know, interviewing, observing and interviewing these adolescent boys. And what I was hearing was they were kind of starting to reconcile, not re not reconcile, but kind of accepting the fact that there is this gap between the way boys are said to be and the way they experience themselves to be. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that they accepted it like, oh, okay, I'm okay with it. They were just saying, this is just how it is. And part of growing up is accepting that people just aren't going to see you for who you are. And they were, it wasn't so much that they were um, like telling me as a conclusion, they were almost like asking me, like, is that what it's like? Is that what you're seeing as an adult who's a few years older? Like, is that what you're finding as well? So, but they were kind of coming to feel like, okay, we've had a few years of experience under our belt. It seems like you, it's just very, very difficult or rare to have spaces where you can be yourself. And, and you're lucky if you do, but it just seems very, very rare. And so Carol said, you know, maybe you need to look earlier. Maybe you need to look at a time when they don't think maybe that's just the way it is, when they're still more actively resisting it. It's not to say that the adolescent boys weren't resisting it, but they were kind of saying like, oh, you know what? You know, like you're saying, I'll get teased. It hurts when I get teased. And this more likely than not, people use it against me when I when I review myself. So I think I better just figure out how to 
be very savvy, very selective about who I show myself to, but accept that for the most part, I can't just enter a space and be myself, that I need to be careful. And you know, so Carol was saying like, well, maybe go to look younger when they're, when they're these rules haven't set in. These rules for engagement haven't yet set in as the way things are supposed to be or have to be. And so they were more openly challenging it. Like, oh, why can't I give my friend a hug? Or why can't we snuggle together? You know, or, or why can't I just you know be exuberant and really excited about things? Because they the rules were just beginning to be introduced. And so Carol encouraged me to look at four-year-old boys in a preschool setting. And sure enough, I mean, they were open and just wore their hearts on their sleeves. You know, they would think, you know, they would tell you exactly what they were thinking and feeling. And so you never had to really second guess them because they would show you, you know, exactly what it is, or you hurt my feelings or don't boss me around. It was just a lot of openness. And so it was at this moment where they could really be honest without having, without self-monitoring to the extent that we all learn to do you know, when we're participating in society. Um, and at, at a moment of transition, when they were entering schools for the, you know, for some of them for the first time, or at least starting to become more invested in like, oh, well, what does it mean to be one of the boys? Or what does it mean to, you know, be appropriate, an, an appropriate boy or a desirable boy? What are people valuing in boys? And kind of learning to kind of rein in some of that exuberance and figure out like, if I want to have status or power or influence, if I want people to take me seriously, how do I need to act? And so they were becoming again it was very socially adaptive in some way you know so that you can see why why they were doing it but there was also kind of a sense of loss because then you lose that heart on the sleeve kind of you know come as you are um that enthused that un unrestrained enthusiasm and curiosity and interest starts to kind of get a little bit um harder to detect you know, not as obvious. And so my my book kind of documents my experience. And it wasn't that they told me this was happening. You know, these were four and five-year-old boys. It was that I experienced it in interacting and have interacting with them and having relationships with them. So I was feeling like, oh, they're pulling away or they're being a little more discreet or trying to be discreet, you know, in ways that they weren't when when at the beginning of the school year. So that kind of, um, so that's really what my book was about was really the three main things was, first of all, boys have these relational capabilities that are often overlooked and underestimated. Like nobody really talks about it because again, we tend to gender those things feminine, like anything that's good at emotions, good at relationships, because our society genders them feminine, boys learn because boys are supposed to be quote unquote, the opposite of girls or the opposite of feminine, they learn, oh, I'm not supposed to show that as much. And so they learn to tone it down and be a little more selective about who they reveal those things to, but it, they're absolutely there and they don't lose those. And then the second thing is that shift, that shift in reading those messages about what's a real man, what's a real boy or whatever, and how they learn, how um, there's a shift. They learn to present themselves in different ways in order to align with kind of societal expectations around masculinity. And, but then the good news is that they don't, like I said, they don't lose those capacities. They continue throughout their lives, as you mentioned, even as you know, men of all ages, to seek connections and to resist disconnections. And so to really acknowledge and value that aspect of their humanity is, is kind of what my work um, tries to emphasize and highlight, because I think that sometimes the stereotypical discourse around what boys and men, who they are or what they're capable of, tends to discount or actively, um, you know, 
push lead them to have feel like they have to hide that or or disguise it in some way when in fact you know if we think about the most successful leaders or the most successful relationships how to be a good partner how to be a good friend how to be a good father if you you know have children you know all these things require those relational capabilities to be intact you know and valued and um able and for boys and men to feel able to to show those things and so they're they're you know, things that are essential to their health, happiness, and success, but yet the messages that they can sometimes receive about what it means to be a real man can can um, create conflict for them in terms of what they feel like they should be embarrassed by or can't show to other people. Sorry, that was a mouthful. And that was great, a great <laughs> mouthful. Thank you. Um, so does does it seem to be that the the first like societal involvement, the first time you start going to school, that's what that's when the pressure to conform really kicks in? I think it can vary, obviously, because some people, you know, some boys, young boys have families who are like, you know, you can do whatever you want. You can say, you know, at, at home, that's fine. You know, and some some families might be more traditional or just have, you know, for, for different reasons, different cultural reasons, different values and beliefs. I think every parent thinks that they have their, their kids' best interests at heart. So it's just a matter of what they think will allow their boy to survive and thrive in the world as they know it. And so I don't think any parent goes out with the agenda to crush their boy's spirits. I think it's that they're saying, you know, the world is dangerous, the world is not always kind. We you know and and that was a huge um dilemma actually that the fathers expressed when when Carol and I met with the fathers because we were so struck by how tender and affectionate they were when they brought their boys in in the morning for morning drop off. And so Carol said, let's meet with the fathers and find out what it's like for them to, you know, experience their boys at this age, you know, and, and the fathers described this, you know, dilemma of like, on one hand, really cherishing, hoping their boys never would have to lose that exuberance, that kind of spunkiness, that really, like, just really loving to be with people and that out there-ness, and also wanting their kids not to be the one who gets targeted and bullied and, in, in you know, called bad names. And so wanting to keep them safe, Right. And so there's this balance and it's a horrible choice, you know, for parents and boys to have to make, like, because obviously we, in an ideal world, you could be yourself and not have to get punished, you know, without the threat or risk of punishment. But, but they also knew, you know, unfortunately the world isn't quite there yet. And, and people could say bad things like, let's say your kid loves this pink dress and wants to wear a pink dress to school. Well, you could say at home, it's safe to wear this pink dress, but at school or in society, it's a toss up. Maybe you'll find yourself in a space that's very accepting, but maybe you'll find yourself in a space where they'll decide that's a really bad thing. And that's a reality as well. You mentioned that, you know, the boys weren't weren't speaking all of this. It, it took the observer, you to, to see some of these changes. But I wonder, were they aware of the pressure to to change it all? I think so. I mean, they, they're aware of expectations and assumptions, right? So they know, for instance, if an adult says, you know, what's okay with one adult versus another? Like, you know, what's okay, what's okay to do with this teacher who, who's maybe a little more welcoming of differences and another teacher who has more firm ideas about what's a good kid and how kids should act or how a boy specifically should act. So they were, you know, like I said, very astute readers of the, of, um, of people and, and of each other. And they would know how to, um, based on what they were experiencing and observing, know how to anticipate like, oh, look at that kid got pushed around or got made fun of when he showed this, I'm going to be careful not to do that. So I would ask them things like, you know, like, 
Are you ever expected to act or be a certain way? Or are there things that you think other people want you to do that sometimes, you know, are there times when you don't really want to do them? And what's that like? And again, they were really able to describe very clearly what was going on from different perspectives. You know, one boy told me, you know, I'm actually friends with all of the girls, but I don't want, you know, the boss of the mean team, which was the boys team to find out because then he'll fire me from his club and then I won't have a, a club or a team. And, you know, and that would be a bummer, you know, and so they know what the consequences are and they're already starting to adjust themselves because what motivates them to even want to, you know, align with these messages about what boys should be like is that they are, again, that kind of relational aspect of their existence, which is that they want to identify and relate to the other boys and the other girls, all the kids, but specifically they want to be one of the boys with the boys. And so it's a, it's a relational motive um, that drives the behavior. Not like somebody says, oh, you have to be a man. And therefore they're like, oh, okay, in that case, I'll do this. I mean, there has to be a genuine incentive there. And that incentive is so sincerely motivated by their desire to be in genuine, meaningful connection with other people. But unfortunately, a lot of the messages that, at least the more kind of traditional messages that we have about masculinity, while they, they're not inherently problematic, do can make it more problematic, can, can make it more difficult for boys and men to establish the kind of connections that have been shown to be protective, you know, against psychological risk, like low self-esteem and depression, against social risk, like risk of substance use for numbing, you know, unintended pregnancy, school dropout, the best protective factors having those authentic mutual relationships and the pathway to manhood as kind of traditionally spelled out really leads boys and men away from that possibility. It makes it harder. It doesn't make it impossible, but it makes it harder because in you know because relationships depend on how you are present in that relationship and if you can't be authentically present then those <laughs> those authentic relationships are just that much more yeah. difficult to come by right yeah it, it's such this this horrible twisted scenario that even at at a young age at every age men are longing for a connection for community but they these communities and connections are built around wearing these masks right and uh I, so I knew that was the case. I had didn't know it started so young. I really thought there was more kind of, you know, come on in, in uh, you know, that again, the teenager puberty start putting which mask should I wear today and how can I fit in and not be noticed? But that it happens in preschool is just, oh, it's very saddening. It is. It is. And actually, I just remembered what your original question was, was like, how early is it happening? And so it can happen even earlier than preschool if they're hearing that, kind, you know, if they're having hearing those messages and feeling those pressures even earlier. If they happen to be in a household or just an environment that says, you know, this is for boys and this is not for boys, mm -hmm. then they're going to learn that too, you know? And so when they, when you, I once at the zoo actually heard a parent tell their baby, boys don't cry. And I was like, that's how babies express themselves. I mean, I'm not sure what you want the, this baby to do other than cry. And so, you know, sometimes the messages are a little bit silly because, you know, that's yeah, how it's, people it, are. It's how we open every, every show. I open like, yeah, so many men are taught not to be human. Right. And it's horrible. It's, it's you know, it's what creates this, this layer upon layer of fakeness and inauthenticity and trying to pretend we've got it all figured out and we don't need anybody's help. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Exactly. Because nobody succeeds alone. And life is hard and we need people. And to deprive anyone of those resources that are so essential is, like you said, it's it's really sad. And it and we really put boys and men in a difficult situation when we don't, like, I think, 
I mean, I've, I've, I've compared it to like, you know, binding someone's arms and legs and throwing them in a pool and saying, swim, swim. And you're like, okay, but let's not, you know, create unnecessary obstacles when life is hard enough as it is. Yeah, right. Go survive, but without all the tools possible. Like, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Good luck. Oh. And I love how you call it the rules for engagement earlier. That was like, never heard that saying, even again, at, at such a young age and the rules for engagement for acting like a man or acting like a real boy, it's, it's, you know, I thought the only time I've heard real boy was, you know, for Pinocchio or something. I didn't realize there was, you know, that this unsaid pressure to even at such young ages. So, so we know you started interviewing in this study, you started talking to boys at age four. So how long did you, did you stick with this group of boys? With that particular group, I followed them um, weekly for the first year and actually weekly for the second year too. So pre-K and kindergarten. And then, um, and then I came back and visited a couple years later to check in with them. I think it, that was third grade, second or third grade, just to kind of see, you know, how things had progressed. And then I, I, after I wrote my book came out, they were much older. And I, when I shared the book, when I gave copies of the book to their families, they said, oh, some of them are nearby. Why don't you call them up? And so I actually had coffee with one of them who was, you know, now way taller than me, six foot four, and just kind of asked him what, you know, what he remembered. And also, I always love to check in with my, with um, the boys who are generous enough to, you know, talk to me, like, you know, what did I miss? You know, what did I not get? And so, for instance, one of the boys told me, well, one of the things I didn't get at was how close he was with his brother and how important that relationship was precisely because some of the peer relationships were so challenging. And so he said, it would have been nice if you could have observed us at home too. Or something. And of course, you know, the study is constrained in a lot of ways. And one of the ways was, I mean, I did make home visits to some of the boys' families um, who invited me to come over and see what their family was like at home. But, you know, definitely that's, that's a very valid point. And he and his brother continue to be very close and they were, you know, always there for each other when sometimes the supports in their peer or other school in a school adult networks didn't, weren't there in the ways that they needed them to be. So, right. so it's yeah. at, least, at least for some siblings, they didn't have to wear that mask. Exactly, exactly. And it's so important to have those spaces, you know, I mean, there's this one study that was um, the adolescent health study that was started in the mid 1990s and was longitudinal and that they're the ones who found that the single best protector against those risks that I mentioned, the psychological risks, the social risks, was having access to at least one close confiding relationship. So that could be with a sibling, it could be with a friend, with a teacher, a parent, a mentor, it could be with anyone, but kids and adolescents who had at least one were much better protected against kind of the risks that can befall our kids as they're going through, you know, the various challenges of life. I wonder what what stood out to you as the most surprising thing from, from all this all this research with, with boys? Um, I think, well, what my, what my partner says, he was, he's always says the thing that strikes him is that they talk to me at all. You know, I'm this, you know, there are many strikes against me. I was older. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm female identifying. And, and sometimes, and in, in the beginning when I was, you know, kind of observing from a distance and trying to give them their space and allowing them to approach me as they felt comfortable, there was a lot of, you know, kind of fun around no adults or no girls, or no teachers, and so kind of negotiating that. But what I guess what surprised me was the fact that they eventually, once they figured out they could trust me, that I wasn't going to tell on them, that I was really interested in learning from them, that I, and I would tell them things like, you know, because I was a girl when I was younger, I don't know what it's like to be a boy, and so I'd really like to learn, and I would love to learn that from you. Then they felt like, oh, okay, then you need to know this, and I got to tell you about this. And sometimes they would like kind of pull on my 
like pulling my shirt tail and be like, oh, come over here. I got to tell you what happened yesterday. And so I felt, again, so lucky and so grateful that that, that they wanted to tell me these things and just felt like, how, how fun is this? You know, I mean, fun in the sense that, you know, getting to hang out with them, but also um, also kind of um, being having the privilege of kind of documenting that so that other people could see, look at what they can do, look at what they're capable of knowing and doing in their relationships. So definitely those stereotypes about, you know, what they're like, and they're not being have not having the capacity or desire for relationships. That's all, you know, not true. So obviously not true because they really are eager to connect. They absolutely have the capacity and desire to do so. And when they do, I mean, they they are so appealing and so interesting and fun to be with. And there's so much to learn from them. I think originally my study was called Learning What Boys Know or Listening to Boys' Voices. I played around with different titles because I'm like, this is what I'm doing. And um, and and it's not just, it's not like something that was special or unique to me. I think that anyone who it shows a genuine, shows up with authenticity the way that you do and really shows a genuine interest in learning, boys can tell them you know, all about their lives and what they need and, and what's going on for them. So what sort of masculine norms are there for a boy in kindergarten? Oh, well, there were all sorts of, uh, the boys actually, they were so clever. They created this club called the Mean Team to identify, you know, so all of the boys, when I asked them things like, what do I need to do? What would I have to do if I wanted to be a boy? They say, well, first of all, you'd have to be a member of the Mean Team because the Mean Team is for all of the boys. And if you were a girl, then you'd be on the Nice Team. And I said, oh, okay, but the thing is, you can get fired from the mean team and end up on the nice team if you break one of the rules, for, like I said, the rules for engagement. So like if you're friends with the girls or if you like games that the girl, you know, if you play with dolls the way that only girls are supposed to play with dolls or or if you or sometimes it was even stuff that was not necessarily you know, transgressing in terms of doing something that was considered feminine. But if you didn't obey what the boss of the mean team was doing, so if you didn't play along with the hierarchy that had been established among the boys, that could also get you in trouble. And sometimes it was nice stuff, too, like if you didn't if you excluded someone, you could get fired from the mean team. And so it was just this interesting thing to kind of keep things feeling safe and more under control. And so they, I guess, to creating a sense of certainty and predictability, like if there were these rules and you followed them, then you could continue, you know, with your membership, you could have this sense of acceptance and belonging. And, you know, when I asked one of the boys, like, you know, what are some of the benefits? You know, what are the good things about being on it? He would say like, well, you know, if you have trouble doing something, then all of the boys would come to your assistance. You know, they would come and help you do it. And so you wouldn't have to be alone. But it always came back to like, so there was, you know, it's this motivation, like even, and even when I said like, oh, well, what is, you know, what would be mean? What's something that's mean? Like, was it actually about cruelty was what kind of what I was getting at. And it wasn't, it was more about like mischief. And because again, because they had read the, read the signs, so to speak, like, oh, well, boys are supposed to be rambunctious or mischievous. So they felt like, you know, sometimes the girls are playing a nice quiet game and you'll come over and you kind of run around them and you'll yell and scream. That kind of thing was, was mean. It wasn't about hurting people. And in fact, when occasionally, you know, somebody accidentally got hurt, you know, one of the boys told me, I don't really want to be a part of that. That's not really something that I want to do. And so, you know, feeling conflicted if things did get, you know, to the point where they were, you know, accidentally hurting somebody, you know, because again, they're four-year-olds. They're not out to, they're not really out to, to, you know, express anything that's you know, that we would consider cruel or aggressive. So you know. it, it wasn't a full on Lord of the Flies experience, this mean team yet. <laughs> no, no, for sure not. <laughs> so did, did you notice and did the boys notice 
was there any sort of price to pay? Like what was lost for not engaging with the nice team? Abs- well, um, for not engaging with the nice team, I think, you know, like, like that one boy said, you know, he actually enjoyed playing with the girls sometimes, you know, one of the girls was really into Star Wars, which had had its, you know, second, you know, Star Wars first came out when I was five. And then when these kids were five, it kind of made, you know, resurfaced. And so they were like, she was totally into Star Wars, knew all the characters, and he thought she was pretty cool and fun. And she had cool toys too, you know, Millennium Falcon and all these things. And so he he wanted to play with her and he would have play dates with her. But that was the thing where he didn't want the other boys to find out because he was afraid of, you know, breaking the rule and then getting fired from the mean team. But, um, and that there there were consequences too. Like I said, you know, when I when you know I, I was saying that that one boy said the advantage was if you needed help, they would help you. They had your back, so to speak. If you know the way that older boys will talk about it, but the disadvantage was he goes, well, sometimes they want to do things and I don't want to do them. Like for instance, the example of hurting somebody. Like you know, one one boy said, oh, let's go over and you know throw these leaves on there, whatever. And he's like, oh, yeah, he didn't really want to do that. Or another time he, he, he they wanted to play soccer and he wanted to play basketball, but he felt like he couldn't do that. And so he said, sometimes I want to make my own decisions. And I said, well, why don't, what, what makes it hard to do that? And he said, well, cause then I worry that, you know, they, they'll, then they'll all gang up and come after me. So kind of deviating or being different could result in everybody else deciding, oh, you're not with us after all, so we're going to team up and be against you. And so they were, again, very aware of what the consequences were of stepping, of nonconformity, right, or stepping outside of the group norm. And, you know, and the, and the, and the, and the so it's, they knew it wasn't all good. It knew it wasn't all bad. So even the boy said to me, he goes, I said, so overall, do you like being on it? He goes, well, I kind of do, but I kind of don't. <laughs> right? And so they could express that kind of feeling divided. You know, they wanted the sense of group membership, but they also felt that, you know, it did limit their freedom and their choices. And sometimes they didn't want to do what the mean team was doing, but they felt like, oh, well, I have to. So. Mm-hmm. Do you find that masculine qualities are more innate or learned? I think um, given that what's considered masculine varies across cultures, I think that you know each culture or subculture decides what they value in boys and men and then encourage that. And so I think that individuals are born with temperaments and predispositions, you know, each, each of us is unique in that sense, right? And so you could have, you know, what we would call a tom girl, tomboy, right? And you could have a girl be very masculine, but, and you could say that that trait, you know, let's say she's really tough and strong and loves to play. And because our society decides that physical toughness and strength is a masculine thing, you could say that she's very masculine. You could even say that those qualities in her or those skills were innate, but I don't know that it's, um, but that that's kind of socially constructed and determined. You know what I mean? She could just as well, you know, um, in, in another culture, like let's say we had, there's a culture where that kind of physical strength wasn't um, specific, specific to a gender, then you could still say it would still be innate, but it wouldn't be considered innately masculine, right? And so does that make sense? Like, so kind of we assign what we decide is masculine or feminine, but there's definitely things, qualities, personality traits, whatever, skills, interests that are innate that then society deems um, gem, um, feminine or masculine. Yeah, I got it. No, it does make sense. Yeah, th- things are innate, but then the labels are not. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You said it so much better than <laughs> I did, much more concisely and clearly. <laughs> Thank you.
<laughs> so so based on all your interviews, everything that you've witnessed and and picked up from from boys and from their fathers, from their parents, what what's your kind of best advice for for parents with who have young boys now? Gosh, I think I think the, um again to I cuz I love I love that they call you the king of authenticity because I think that that's really central. Um I usually when I um give advice and I'm hesitant to do so because I'm not a perfect parent myself, but the things that I strive for are this kind of authenticity that is not about being perfect, far from it. And I find that kids really feel reassured and relieved to know that the, I mean, obviously you don't want everything to be chaotic all the time, but they like to know that it's okay to make mistakes, that even adults don't always know, and to do it in a way that's kind of reassures them that we're going to help you through this, but we can't guarantee anything. And that's okay. Life is just like that. Then they don't feel like failures when they come across their own limitations or when they make their own mistakes, you know? And so when, and, and so I guess the advice I usually pass along because it's what I heard from the fathers and mothers of these boys. Cause we eventually the mothers, when they heard that we were meeting with the fathers and they're like, well, we want to talk to you too. And we want to meet too. So, but you know, it's really about, you know, showing up, as you know as humbly and as authentically as you can you know and and sometimes being like you know that's a good question or yeah that's a real problem and sometimes you know like one father said you know his son wanted to know you know what are friendships about you know what's that about what are your your friends like what do you like about that or what is it when we get angry because we get really angry sometimes and what do we do with that and to have someone say you know, yeah, of course you're going to feel these things and there are better ways and worse ways to express them. And so let's talk about that. And what do you think about that? And having that conversation, I think a lot of times as parents, we feel like um, we need to be perfect and we need to show up as perfect in order to make our kids feel safe. But I think ironically, it's when we are appropriately authentic. Does that make sense? Like we, we, you know, we don't want to like burden them with our troubles, but we, it's fine to let them know that, yeah, we're struggling too. We're constantly figuring things out. Things are scary to us too. And this is what we do and we'll figure it out together. I feel like, and so I, I usually say, start with listening, right? Start to listening, start with listening so that you can find, first of all, figure out what exactly they're asking. Cause we, I also jump to conclusions. Like I hear this, like, oh, they're asking about gunplay, for instance. I'm like, oh no, you know, there's this like automatic slippery slope to, does this mean they're going to be violent and aggressive? But they're just wondering what it is, you know? And and what I observed with the boys in my class, in that, um, in that particular class actually, was that the gunplay didn't, for the boys, carry any of the negative connotations. It was just a way for them to instantly relate to the other boys. Not because boys have to play with guns, but because the boys in this class happen to play with guns. And so if they said, oh, look, here's a Lego, whatever, a gun, I see it, you see it, cool, we both see it, right? But then actually that year, um, one of the school shootings happened and that was obviously scary to them. And when that happened, they stopped playing with the guns because they hadn't realized how guns hurt people. So, you know, then you realize, oh, you know, it's, I think that it's the same thing that, you know, adults do with Barbies and girls are like, oh, no, she likes Barbie. That means she's going to have body image issues or she's going to think that this is the only one way to be beautiful or whatever. And so adults have a lot of connotations and to kind of stop ourselves from going down our own paths of associations and check in with the kid. And so, again, starting with listening, 
seeing what their questions really are and not necessarily feeling like we have to have the answers, but just being with them in the question or sometimes being with them in the struggle. Like sometimes something hurts and, you know, a friend doesn't want to be your friend anymore and that sucks. And you're like, yeah, I get that. And they don't want you to solve it for them because then it almost feels like trivializing the problem. Like, oh, there was a simple solution and why don't you just do this? But sometimes they just want someone to hear it and to know what they're, understand what they're going through. The boys have said themselves, you know, just that sense that someone else knows what you're going through and understands. It's just, they said, it's just kind of comforting. Mm -hmm. And I think that's um, what we, I think that's among the best things that adults can provide, you know, as parents or teachers or anyone wanting to support boys and men, actually. Yeah, because I, yeah, <laughs> so, you know, I hear that in adult relationships often too, like, no, I, you don't need to fix anything. Just listen to what I have to say and let, let it just be. But yeah, it, so many people keep things pent up and, but especially men, we're part of the, part of our training, uh, fix things, take action, drive forward. And so it can be tough to just, oh, I, I just have to nod. That's the extent of the interaction you want from me. Okay. I can do that. Right. And it's so well-intentioned, right? Our hearts are in the right place. When we see someone we care about hurting, we want to fix it for them. But then sometimes if we can remind ourselves, like when we're hurting, do we want someone to offer, you know, simple <laughs> solutions or sometimes, and so it. It's a constant practice, right? I, I find it myself too, because I'm a fixer too. And when somebody presents a problem, I'm like, oh my gosh, what can I do to help you make it better? And some things just, you know, you can't, <laughs> you can't, all you can do is be there and let them know, you know, you're with them, you understand, and you know that it's, it's going to get better with time, right? And so. You know, so, so there was a great example. You said you were a fixer and I'm used to fixer being labeled as masculine. <laughs> and so wanting to fix things can be innate and then society goes and blows it and gives it some other label and, you know, conformity or nonconformity or whatever it might be. But great. Cool. Right. And that's related to those masks you're talking about. Right. Because if we could just come and show up as we are with the whole range of human emotions, how freeing would that be? Right. There's no constraint like, oh, if you like this or you do that or you have this skill or interest, then oh, you can't have that because that's a that's the wrong category. That's not the category you were assigned. It's just like, it's really arbitrary and it's unnecessary. I think that if we could just relax those a little bit and just let people come as they are and say like, you know, that's fine. That's great. You know, we really need people to be different and to bring different skills and perspectives and opinions to make society richer. Mm -hmm. I think that's def always a plus. And so why, why flatten everybody into, you know, one or the other when, when there's so much more that we can offer individually if we're allowed to kind of do the things we most feel passionately about and are good at. Couldn't agree more. Awesome. Uh, Judy, I, I find you and your work fascinating. I really want to thank you for, for joining us today. What's the best way for people to learn more about everything that you're up to? Oh my goodness. Um, well, I have, uh, I, I have a very informal webpage. It's a, it's through WordPress. And I think it's in the bio that you included in the description for this. Um, okay. I should have it memorized, but I don't. Um, and if they want to reach me, um, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and it, that's a good way to message me. And then I can provide them with my email that way. And so I'm happy to, you know, if I can be of help, please reach out and, and happy to do so. Great. Uh, thanks again for joining us, Judy. Thanks to everyone for listening and finding us. And please visit realmenfield.org. There will be a blog post for this episode. We'll have links to all the books and resources mentioned. And wherever you're discovering Real Men Field, please give a like, subscribe, share this episode with someone that would find value in it, which is everybody. And um, you can always reach out to me at realmenfield at gmail.com. Always glad to hear from you. And if you're not yet in the Real Men Field private Facebook group, 
There is one, and you can get there right away by visiting realmenfield.org group. And until next time, be good to yourself and the little boys in your life. Be well. <laughs>